This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I write about how you could be more engaged and successful at work. Today, we'll be talking about one of the major keys to workplace satisfaction, and that is collaboration. Our distinguished guest is Heidi Gardner, the co-author of an important new book. The full title is Smarter Collaboration, A New Approach to Breaking Down Barriers and Transforming Work. Heidi is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School, and she's a former professor at Harvard Business School. She also heads up multiple executive education programs, including at both of those schools. Heidi will talk about why collaboration is more important than ever, both for organizations and for individuals. She'll describe common barriers to collaborative work, and she'll share tips about how you can develop important skills for working with others. Heidi, your new book, Smarter Collaboration, has been called groundbreaking, and I've been kind of following it, and I am impressed about how you're creating buzz and interest and conversation all around the world. So I want you to share some of the tips, and I know that the issues that you're addressing are really important. But before we get into you know all those details, I'd like to uh, learn a little bit about why you are so passionate about collaboration and how you and your colleagues did research and, you know, what was the story of developing this approach and developing this book? Well, thanks so much for having me. And passionate is absolutely the right word. I, um, some people actually say obsessed, but that's <laughs> another story. Now, I can trace the interest in this at least back 20 plus years when I was leading teams at the consulting firm McKinsey and Company. And I noticed that we would have two equally diverse teams. You know, I had a master's degree from the London School of Economics, and we would have folks who had MBAs, but also degrees in astrophysics or maybe a concert pianist on the team. And one of those teams would innovate and create something very breakthrough and solution-oriented that the client was excited about, and so were we as team members. And then we'd have another team that was equally impressive on the surface, but somehow we just didn't click. We just weren't on fire. We were creating solid ideas, but they weren't groundbreaking. And I was just so curious. I mean, I couldn't blame it on the leader because I was leading both teams. What was it about those teams that allowed one to really dive in and pull out the best of each and every team member and others were just sort of ho-hum? So long story short, I left McKinsey. I got my PhD, kept studying this subject. And the questions just getting, kept getting deeper and richer. And so I have been working on this topic that we now call smarter collaboration for the better part of two decades. And with my team at Harvard and outside of Harvard and a network all across the world, we've collected millions and millions of data records so we can really dig into this 
empirically. We can bring math and science and analytics to the study of what some people, I think, mistakenly call a soft topic. And that passion has driven me to keep working on this, to expand the ideas, not just why we should engage in smarter collaboration, but what kinds of benefits does it bring for for people, for companies, I dare say even for society, and most importantly, how do we get there? Well, well, I am also passionate about collaboration, but I don't know uh, very much about it after a long uh, career of trying to prom- promote it every place I've gone along. So I'm really eager um, to have you talk a little bit more about the details, uh, the, the why and the how. But first on the why, one of the things that I found interesting about your book, and, and which doesn't always happen, is that you touched not only on um, research about organizations, but you touched on neuroscience and, and on why collaboration is so important for individuals, why it's a good thing for for every person uh, to be engaged in collaboration. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Why is collaboration good for your mind and your body as well as your career success? Yeah, absolutely. So we are specifically talking about smarter collaboration. We're not just talking about generally teaming up because it's a nice to have. We're talking about being very focused and deliberate on an outcome. So pick a complex topic and start to unpeel it and say, if we are trying to figure out how to address, and I think from the the warming oceans to how to use generative AI for the betterment of society, now those are big, complicated problems. And if we begin to unpack them, we'll see that very different perspectives are necessary to come together and create a more holistic solution. And when we engage in that way, it's better for each person involved because it allows them to really play to their strengths. They might be the computer scientists on the AI functionality, or they might be the ethicists thinking about what are some of the ramifications, or they might be an educator figuring out how to engage students at whatever level in using AI in the most appropriate and helpful ways. Right? We could go on and on, but the point is that each person gets to dive in where they have a specialty, where they've honed their wisdom, where they have taken their own passions and gone deep, deep, deep. And that's really good for people because it allows them to play to their strengths, which loads of different kinds of research, certainly not just my own, shows that people are more engaged and they are more uh, societally and socially better off. Um, What that means, for example, uh, there's some great neuroscience research that you alluded to showing that when people have strong relationships in the workplace, it's actually better for their brains. They perform higher on cognitive tasks. They have, from what I understand, um, more and stronger, better functioning connections uh, in between parts of their brains. And, uh, And other research shows things like Uh, engaging with people at work in very productive ways reduces loneliness, which might, again, sound like a a nice to have, but reduction in loneliness is linked to things like better immune response. And so direct 
health and mental health outcomes for people who work in these kinds of ways. And of course, we've been able to track things, you know, perhaps not quite as grand, but very important for people like career success. And we've been able to demonstrate, um, you know, we have comparisons in our book of, of, you know, these small case studies. We take two individuals who are nearly identical to each other. They share loads of demographic characteristics, but they're also in the same company, in the same role, at the same level of seniority. And we can contrast them because from our data, we see that one is highly collaborative and one is much more siloed or isolated. And again and again and again, through these different kinds of analyses that we run, we show that the person who's not only got a bigger network, but is able to activate that network and use it strategically, that person is oftentimes multiples higher on the performance scales. So no matter which angle you're looking at when it comes to, is somebody better off? We've got some research to support that collaboration, smarter collaboration does make a positive difference. Okay. So let me make sure I've got this right. Now, I I know um, that there's huge research talking about the importance of engaging with people if you want to be happy in life, successful at work. That's that's really clear. But you've taken it further and you're looking at um, collaboration, smart collaboration, which means not just engaging and, and with people, but drawing on what makes you diverse and special and expertise and things like that. And so when there's smart collaboration, everybody's uh, bringing their special skills and observations and opinions into the situation. And so for the organization, is that diversity and that that uh, abundance of viewpoints, is that what makes collaboration smarter when everybody's engaged and you're getting a full array of expertise? Ah, so you've just hit on something so crucial, which is it's not just having the diversity on the team, in the room, inside the company, right? Because, you know, going back to my beginning, we could compare two teams that were equally diverse, but they were operating really differently. Yes. And, And so, you know, one of the chapters in our book is called The Illusion of Inclusion, which means that, um, you know, we sometimes make the mistake of believing that just because we've ticked the box, we have one person of this type, one of that type, one from this function, one of that age group. Ah, okay, we've, we've ticked the diversity box. We must be good to go. But the magic only happens when both the leader and the individuals engaging with each other create the context where those unique characteristics and viewpoints are not only welcomed, but they're used. And what that means is you have to create a context where people are comfortable with discomfort, as funny as that sounds. But you know, if we are intentionally seeking out people who see the world differently from us, people who grew up with you know, different cultures or life experiences or different professional training or even different aspirations, they're going to see the same issue from a different perspective. And we have to lean into those differences. We have to welcome that. We have to believe that when they challenge us, it's so that we can get a better solution together rather than shying away from that confrontation because it feels like unwelcome friction. And so having diversity on a team is the starting point, 
But we need to go so much further in a behavioral sense to create the environment where people appreciate each other's differences, use those differences to pressure test ideas, to bring different viewpoints together, and then create a unified holistic solution that does draw on these different people's different strengths and and points of view. You made a point in the book that I thought was really interesting. And I think it's something that's very often overlooked. And that is that leaders, the people at the top who tend to be collaborative and have big skill sets and expertise and all of those things, they have a sense that they're in a collaborative organization. But that uh, collaboration at the top doesn't naturally flow down. And you can very often leaders perceive a collaboration going on that is only limited to, you know, maybe the top of the pyramid is you want to talk about that and, and how a smarter collaboration, how, how you go about overcoming the barriers to having it flow down. Yeah, Bev, you know, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of a few specific times when I've tried to engage in smarter collaboration, you know, bringing my outsider's lens into a company and trying to speak truth to power, you know, telling the CEO that perhaps she's delusional um, in believing that collaboration happens as efficiently and effectively for all 10,000 people in the company as it does for her sitting in the C-suite. Sometimes that's a welcome message. Um, Sometimes I, you know, get a bit of pushback. But this is what we've observed again and again and again, both empirically through the different data collection methods and and analytics that we've run, but also from direct experience with people at the top of companies and government agencies and nonprofits. It's a correlation between people having power, positional power or control over resources and people's willingness to collaborate with them. I did, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, oftentimes, the lower down, and I'm using hierarchical language here, so yeah. forgive me, but you know, the lower down in the org chart somebody sits, the more friction points they encounter. Uh, you know, it's even hard for them to get the attention that they need or the recognition they deserve when they have gone out on a limb to engage uh, in this way, which frankly can be costly and risky and time-consuming. And if somebody is repeatedly putting the effort in and not getting the recognition and reward they deserve for it, that can be incredibly demotivating. And I think it is incumbent on leaders to have those touch points where that honest dialogue flows and, frankly, some better data collection methods so that even in the absence of somebody being willing to admit where those deficiencies lie, especially, you know, if they're being asked by a powerful individual, that that leader will have access to data and analytics showing them where collaboration friction exists and, uh, and ideally being able to pinpoint it before it gets problematic. So that brings you to what I think it feels like a, a, a central theme of your book and your work. And that is that it's not enough to just theorize and even to ask and ask other people to ask. If you want to understand whether or not collaboration is happening and whether um, it's smart and whether it's well um, understood, you got to start with diagnostics. Yeah. That feels like where you've done something special here. 
would you tell us a bit about what kind of diagnostics you're talking about and what kind of elements it's possible to examine when when people just don't know where they stand? A hundred percent. So I suppose, Bev, at heart, I'm sort of a geek, right? I, I love data and analytics. But part of the reason I love it is that it gives us a more objective way of understanding what's happening. Because in areas like collaboration, if we simply ask somebody, tell me all the people you've worked with over the last month or quarter, there's inherent bias built into that question. We automatically, as humans, tend to remember people who are higher status or higher power, et cetera. And so we need more objective, data-driven ways, not just to overcome some of those biases, but also to be more efficient and then to be able to use predictive analytics to see where we go next. So we have, over the last, call it five or six years, been working with my team, Gardner & Company. It's a Gardner & Collaborators is the name of our firm outside of Harvard that, that I uh, lead. And we've been working with organizations to try to build in a process that collects data in a fairly light touch way. We're not talking about building you know, enormous systems, but collects enough data from enough different points of view, say people across different levels in the organization, making sure you tap into different parties, you know, if there are suppliers, vendors, uh, customers, um, leaders, as well as workers at different levels, and collect data in different ways, both from archival sources like their project management databases that show objectively who's working with whom and how many different projects anyone is tapped for at any given time, as well as some of the perceptual measures about what stands in the way. Do you feel like you can trust other I've people, lost the sound. both in terms of their competence, you know, are they highly capable and do they deliver high quality work, but also in terms of their character? When you work with them, are they going to steal credit or you know, do the, some of those other jerky kinds of moves that, that, that some people might do? And so we've developed this methodology that lays out in a very step-by-step -step way how to collect that data, where to get it, how to analyze it, what it means, and then what to do about it. If, if it's pointing in certain directions, what are some of the likely root causes that that really shows and what might you do about it? And as I said, we've used this tool, we've been honing it for the last half decade or so, and we codified it into the Smarter Collaboration Diagnostic Toolkit. And our publisher has made that available alongside our book, sort of as a companion how-to um, uh, toolkit that allows uh, people, leaders or other people inside an organization to put this into practice. And it really gives this data-backed foundation for understanding not only where collaboration is blocked, but also some of the bright spots. Where is it working really well so that we can not reinvent the wheel, but take parts of what's already working well. Sometimes they're kind of unsung heroes or situations that are harder for, for perhaps the leaders to observe and say, how do we replicate that? If we know that it works in our organization in certain pockets, how do we make that a more widespread common practice and part of our culture? So, so Bev, that's you know one of the ways that toolkit is one of the ways that we have built in diagnostics and analytics and, and tried to make those available for people who are excited about these ideas and want to take them further. So I looked it up. Um, my I can't remember how much it costs, but the toolkit's a couple hundred dollars. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think it, it's um, it's around that price. I don't exactly know the price point myself, okay. but yes, it is. It's around that price, which frankly is a huge bargain compared to uh, you know going out to a big consulting firm and asking them to put some kind of methodology in place. Yeah, I um, I normally don't like to uh, promote consulting services, but I, when I looked on that, I thought, wow, this really is a bargain for an organization because you're not going to get an hour of a consultant's time. Um, and it looked like it was pretty complex, but, but let me ask, this is a, this is a tough question. We're going to have uh, listeners there who aren't going to spend $200. Don't have that in their budget to mm-hmm. promote collaboration, maybe with their small team. Just really simply, if we have listeners who are convinced that, it would be good for them and good for their, that maybe they're leading a team of eight or 10, be good for everybody. If they could have more smart collaboration, how would you start asking questions or doing an analysis if you, if you don't have your tool, but you just want to do a little better where you are? Absolutely. So I think there are some, um, some real important questions that open up the dialogue. And even if you've got eight or 10 people, you could design this in a way that people are giving anonymous feedback. So design that, you know, what some people might call a pulse survey, um, the, the sort of um, quick fire way to, to solicit people's opinions, perhaps on an ongoing basis, so you can identify trends and ask people um, how comfortable they are and then fill in the blank. What really matters to your mm-hmm. team? Is it is it um, speaking up and contributing novel ideas, even if they're untested? You know, if you have a job where innovation is important and people feel reticent to, to throw out the quote unquote crazy idea, that would be un- important to uncover. Um, you know, you can also ask questions, not by name perhaps, but overall, how much do you trust other people on this team to, and again, fill in the blank. Um, I think you always want to ask about both competence and interpersonal trust, because even if I think, you know, so-and-so is the the world's biggest guru in an area, if I think that person's going to steal my ideas, I'm probably not going to collaborate very effectively with him or her. And so getting a, a gauge of how much trust of different flavors there are within the team is, is really crucial. And asking a few other important questions, do we know what it is that we're collaborating to achieve? In other words, do we have a, a, a very clear shared objective? This one, I think, rather than just getting people to say yes or no, one fun exercise is quick to do. Give everyone an, an index card, you know, a three by five piece of paper. Ask them to write down in their own words, what is it as a team that we're trying to achieve? And here, Bev, it's it's actually not important to have 100% identical answers. In fact, if you have that, it probably means people are parroting back something they've memorized. They haven't really internalized it. But get people to write that down and compare their answers and see how similar it is. I think it's a, a starting point for a crucial discussion. Why is it that we're collaborating together And that can then launch the next question of, if this is what we're trying to achieve, do we have the right brains around the table? And are we creating the context where everyone wants to take what's in their brain and make it available for the group to achieve that outcome? 
I really like that suggestion. I can envision a, a meeting in which everybody has filled out their cards or maybe you can use an app for uh, asking people to comment on things. Uh, I can see that happening and uh, have it be, it can be kind of fun. I mean, you know, know, the right uh, spirit, it can be enjoyable and funny and also very meaningful all at the same time, I, I think. Absolutely. And it works just as well for an online group, right? So, you know, we, there's so much hybrid working or or remote working these days. And, you know, the, the key there is ask everyone the question of what is it that we're trying to achieve together, have them enter their ideas into the chat, and then hold off on hitting enter until everyone is finished, right? And then everyone hits enter at the same time. And zip, 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 you start to see all of these different answers emerging. And it's like, wow, okay, we are absolutely rowing the same direction or hold on, you know, half of us think that we are going for revenues and profits and financial gain. And, and half of us think that it's fine to postpone those financial outcomes while we're working on product development. We'd better put our heads together and figure out what is it that we really need to do together right here, right now. And it, again, if you have the right spirit in the room, I love that you use that word, you know, the spirit of co-creation, of truly engaging in smarter collaboration so that we are better together, that's the spirit in which people are willing to take that risk and answer those kinds of questions. If a leader finds that people are reticent, that in and of itself is an important data point. What's going on that blocks people from feeling like this is the place where I can voice my opinion? Well, you've touched on, and in, in, in that discussion, which I really appreciate, by the way, but you touched upon remote work and hybrid work and those things. And that, I think, maybe is one of the big questions of the day. I, um, In my, my day job, among other, I have multiple day jobs, but I'm an executive coach and I coach people around the country, leaders typically, sometimes in universities or corporations and very often with the federal government. And everybody's struggling and trying hard, I think, to come up with a way to have a robust collaboration in a hybrid environment. I can see people really trying to get it right, trying to be inclusive. But what I also see happening is more people are going back in the office. The people who are going in the office are going to have lunch together. Maybe they'll have a drink on Friday, something like that. And the people who are in another part of the country or maybe just taking advantage of the opportunity to work remotely, they're not there. So how do you navigate um, keeping a collaborative spirit when you have some people who are hanging out together and others who are not? Yeah, I, I think this is a real challenge. And first of all, it's a leadership question. This um, idea, I, I recently heard somebody use the phrase that the office should be a magnet, not a mandate. And what I'd like to challenge leaders to think about is what is it that people can tap into when they're in the office that perhaps comes more naturally or easier uh, in an in-person environment. So what is it that you could really enhance in that office experience that would make people want to come in, that would draw them in? And then how do you think about the people who 
for whatever reason, are less able or less comfortable coming into the office, how do you replicate that experience and make sure they're not penalized for their decisions? You know, Bev, one of the things that scares me a lot is when I look at data about who is less likely to come to the office, that's oftentimes the people who need mentorship, sponsorship, promotion opportunities the most. And, you know, we could get into a whole conversation about what is it that makes somebody more likely to stay at home? You know, could it be childcare or elder care or, uh, you know, those kinds of responsibilities? Could it be, you know, the tough commute because people with less income are often more likely to have longer, more arduous commutes? You know, what is it that's keeping people um, away from the office? And how do we ensure that those individuals do have access to the kinds of opportunities that arise so easily in the workplace? And I think that as leaders, that's the conversation we want to have, not how do we force people back to the office, um, but how do we create um, an equitable playing field for people where we acknowledge that you know, for some individuals, coming to the office is a much greater burden than others? Um, and how do we create the kind of environment where for people who can, then coming to the office is you know not just um, uh, an obligation, but a real pleasure. And I'm using that word advisedly, you know, people really want to be there and connect with each other. Um, and, you know, and, and creating that parallel experience, no matter where people are working is truly a leadership challenge, but it's not insurmountable. Um, I would also say, you know, let's make sure that in as much as we're saying the tone and the topic starts from the top, we're also saying there's real personal accountability for choices people make. And, you know, I would like to see individuals who are making whatever choices about where they work take accountability for some of those consequences and take the extra step that makes their, say, their competence more visible to other people. It might mean rather than, you know, the the 45 minutes you would have spent commuting, maybe you deliberately take that time certain days of the week and join an online forum that you know you you answer questions that other people are popping into the um, to the to the community of practice, or maybe you write up a, a short blog post explaining how what you have learned at some point at work has really been valuable to you, and you're sharing it with other people. You know, creating a deliberate action plan for demonstrating your own generosity, your own competence creating, if you will, your personal brand, I think people need to be thoughtful and intentional about how they use the time that they're not commuting uh, in ways that give them some of the advantages that that would have arisen had they been in the office. I think that's really uh, good advice. And one of the things, when things are working well, one of the things I see happening is that the people who are doing that, who are making an effort to collaborate to connect and so forth. They're helping their colleagues. They're adding to the culture. That effort is good for them because they're more visible and more appreciated and more engaged in the discussion, but they're also supporting a collaborative culture. So that's a good thing. Well, absolutely. Can I, can I, Bev, can I give you a super quick example? Sure. Um, just concretely, one of the, um, back to the tools, you know, one of the 
the resources, and this one's free, that we have put together is a book club kit. And so we've gone chapter by chapter in the book and pulled out questions for discussion. And somebody who's working at home, for example, could really easily create a sort of book club where once every so often they draw together people with uh, similar interests and they dive into a book and they lead that discussion for them. And it creates not just a learning experience, it cultivates curiosity beyond somebody's immediate job. And it demonstrates some, you know, that individual's leadership skills for taking the initiative to do this. And so, you know, I'd encourage people to be thinking about opportunities like that to build their leadership skills, to demonstrate those skills, and like you said, contribute to the community. And I think the book club idea is a brilliant idea. And I'm glad you mentioned that you have a a, a book club um, guide there. Um, I think there's a there's a lot to discuss here, and it it's fun to talk about things like this for a lot of people. So I, I hope they uh, people might think about the book club idea and and have some fun with it. But I've had fun. It's such a pleasure to have a, a chance to talk with you, Heidi. And I um, I wish you well. I think you're doing important work, and uh, you're focusing in on mindset and well-being and all kinds of things as well as organizational success so thank you for doing that and thank you for being was mine thanks so much for your interest really appreciate it take care today we've been talking with harvard professor heidi gardner about smarter collaboration This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that there are real benefits to your mind and body when you work closely with others. Research says that collaboration can support your well-being. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. If you enjoy our show, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating.